Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. My guests today are the translators Yasmin Seal and Robin Mosier. Their latest book is an experimental collaboration called Agitated Air, Poems After Ibn Arabi. Ibn Arabi was a prolific scholar, poet and mystic working in the 12th and 13th centuries. He grew up in Andalusia, but later travelled throughout the Arab world, dying in Damascus in 1240, where he is buried. There have been many translations of Ibn Arabi's extensive body of work, but nothing quite like what Yasmin and Robin have attempted. Today, we will be talking about their rather unusual approach to co-translation and what the result tells us about the possibilities and limits of translation itself. Yasmin, Robin, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Now, I wonder, just before we jump into the translation and everything, I wondered if we could just start talking a little bit about Ibn Arabi himself, who I imagine both of you have got to know quite well over the course of this work. But for those listeners who aren't as familiar with him, could you talk a bit about who he was? Sure. Ibn Arabi was one of the great uh, spiritual teachers of the Muslim world and one of the great philosophers. Um, he was born in the 12th century in southern Spain, um, but he at some point in his youth moved east. He moved to, to Damascus and spent most of his life there and died there. He's mostly known for his philosophical writing, um, but it was his poetry that we were particularly interested in. Yeah, I was going to ask, what what drew you to him in the first place? What made you choose him for this project? So one of the genesises of this project was just that I had started translating a series of poems by um, pre-Islamic and early Islamic and then medieval poets. And I had done some translations of Ibn Arabi um, from the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq, which is this, the Interpreter of Desires, which is the collection we're translating from, but also from his Diwan, which is his collected poems. And then Yasmin and I started talking about those poems and fell into this project. So that's the accidental route into the project, if you like. And so that's how you both started the conversation that yes. gave birth to a joint project but it wasn't a co-translation in any straightforward sense it seems um I'll, I'll and I'll quickly describe why each of you translated a version of a selected poem separately before swapping those first attempts and then retranslating or rewriting in response to each other and this was repeated until and I quote you from the introduction we are exhausted and the process begins again <laughs> And I just want to say from the outset, um, I found the result remarkable. Uh, each poem by Ibn Arabi is printed in Arabic and then followed by a series of versions from each of you with each repetition kind of fleshing out the central idea, echoing each other in idea and sometimes word, yet each of them subtly or sometimes very, very different. And I thought the poet Vani Capaldeo put it brilliantly when they said that these repeated attempts build, and I quote, with the intimacy of pieces of a puzzle that do not fit together, yet are part of one scene. 
Now, we've talked on this podcast before about the inherent difficulties, even impossibilities of translation. That was um, in one episode where I was very frank that I am particularly poor at it myself. So I am in endlessly in awe of all of you. But here is a very particular version of that task. First, because obviously there are two of you, but more than that, you weren't translating together in any direct way. You were very much translating alone and then comparing notes as it were. Now, how does it feel um, when you've struggled over a, a particular poem by yourself to receive the email with the other's version of the very same poem? There must be some sort of trepidation or excitement, curiosity, right? Before you open it. Yasmin, how did it feel when the email with Robin's first attempt landed in your inbox? I should say, Lydia, it's um, so wonderful to know that you that you have read this book and that you have enjoyed it. I think of you as the kind of ideal reader for it, as someone who um, is a scholar of uh, Arabic kind of writing from this this period, um, but also someone who's been so active in contemporary poetry in English. Um, and to have that kind of double vision, I think, is very rare. Um, so. You know, if, if you are the only person who likes it, that is already, that's enough. <laughs> um, oh, well, that's wonderful. I want you to know I've been living with it for weeks. It's just been around. So, yes, it, it's not just that I appreciate it. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to hear. Um, I mean, the honest answer, I suppose, is that it kind of began, we didn't know what it was going to be. Um, as Robin said, uh, he had produced a couple of translations which I read and which I just loved. Um, and I really admired how fresh they were and how sort of strange they were. Um, and I was kind of starting to translate poetry from this period myself. And these translations that I found of Robin's really sort of chimed with what I thought these poems could be in English. And so really it just began as a kind of, it began as a conversation long before the idea of a book before we knew even what form it was going to take. We kind of had the idea of maybe translating these poems together. Um, yeah. And we chose one poem and decided to each produce a translation separately and to see what happened. And we exchanged those. And then without really planning it this way, I think we both felt that we wanted to go again. <laughs> There's something yeah. about the experience of reading someone else's translation that I think makes you think of all the possibilities that each poem contains. Robin, does this sound familiar? <laughs> it does sound familiar. Yasmin's account of how it how it how it started is exactly right. It, uh, like a a conversation, but also in a way like a game, in the best sense. Once we'd exchanged that first poem, like Yasmin says, I don't think anything exactly was said, but we came at the same time without saying anything quite quickly to the pattern that we then followed, which was that the next translation was in some sense a response to the one we had received. Those first versions then were some closer than others. They must have, this must have varied quite a lot over the process, no, that, that your first attempts, were you ever surprised at how close they were to each other's? So the first sequence we did, which we could read to you, four poems. Two each. Yeah, two each, and they all stay pretty close to the Arabic original. You'll probably hear it. They sort of circle around um, the parent poem. Um, but there are other sequences where we kind of 
ventured more kind of broadly and started experimenting more with what we could do. And it went in all kinds of directions. Every time that happened, it sort of cleared a space for it to happen again or for other things to happen. That sounds very liberating. Well, let's start with that early that early attempt then. So, yeah, I think this was this was the first one, wasn't it? Yes. It was. Yeah. Okay, so Salve to Salma, to all who come within the bounds of care, be well. Such tenderness as this should be solicitous. What would it cost her to return our greeting to us? Loveliness owes no answer. Travelling, and the dark came down, I said to her, I am one so gone in love, alone and stricken, pressed on all sides by desires, and found by arrows everywhere he goes. Her smile unfolding, a bolt of lightning flared. Which cut the night, I do not know. She said, is it not enough for him that his heart hold me, that he can behold me every instant? Is it not enough? Welcome to Selma and those in her shelter, for it is right, only polite, to say hello. What is hello to her? Why not reciprocate? A marble goddess will not be swayed. They left as night lowered its blind. I told her I was not myself, a man made strange, her captive. That I was caged round with desire, the prey of every racing arrow. Teeth, lightning, which of the two split the gloom, I could not say. Is it not enough, she said, that I am in his heart, where he may look at me forever? Is that not enough? Salma, you are safe. Hello. So me, all tender, though she could reply, no? No. So still and so sublime, so blameless. We set out and the night drew down its blinds. And I said, I am so in love. I am no more myself, I am a slave, I am dogged hard by desire, and slick arrows hit me everywhere, and bared teeth or bright lightning. The dark was cut away, and she was saying, though I am in his heart, so he may see me always. Even so, even so. Selma, are you safe? Remember me to your company. Wish them all well. Gentleness is made for wishing, made to fret and bend in greeting. She is made of marble, no reply came. She is lovely, she cannot be blamed. Nightfall, its curtains, it's time to move, to move on. I manage, I love you, I promise I've changed. Desire surrounds me, fast arrows find me. Something, teeth or lightning, flared. Dark fell apart, what more is there to want, she said, when I am yours, to keep in your heart ever under your watch. What more is there? What? Thank you both. <clears throat> That's beautiful. And you were reading your own translations, weren't you? Not each other's. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that always how it works? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it made me think, actually, the, the question you asked about how close they were to each other and the idea of surprise. Yasmin said, you know, later on things would spiral out, but we sort of learned each other mm -hmm. as we went through. 
and you would find yourself writing into sometimes an anticipation of what was going to come. So did your first attempts become more similar over time or more divergent because you were writing into this expectation? I think it produced both effects. I think mm -hmm. there was sometimes a narrowing together and then a conscious, maybe sometimes would you say, Yasmin, like almost a writing against that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I in particular was prone to skipping ahead <laughs> and wanting to almost write the response before the translation. Um, yes, yeah. There was something wonderful about the freedom that we had to kind of open up the poems rather than pin them down with a single reading, which is yeah. what translation is. We could do this kind of luxurious riffing. On that note, it's important that there wasn't expectation of publication. Our audience was just each other. Mm. And it wasn't an audience that would scrutinize exactly, but just one that would respond. And that actually brings me to the book as a whole, because reading these, these not quite repetitions, it gives a sense of the act of translation. And I wondered if, if that was part of your considerations in choosing to publish, not just to bring the Ibn Arabi to an English-speaking audience, but also to bring the idea of translation, and as you say, both opening up translation, but also just showing how um, a single translation pins it down. So that's what I meant in the introduction, actually. You're showing the possibilities of translation, how many different ways a poem can be opened up, but you're also showing indirectly the limits of it, because you're showing that if you had been publishing a more traditional book of, of, of translated poetry, you'd have picked one or you'd have used each other's to come to some sort of hybrid or, you know, it would have been pinned down. And so that's kind of an education to an audience who's never had to grapple with such issues of untranslatability. Is this what you were hoping to achieve at all, to communicate both Ibn Arabi and the process of translation? I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're right. In a way, what we're communicating is that people should mistrust <laughs> translations. Yeah. Yeah. We're sort of teaching them to measure the gap between a poem and, and any one translation. Mm. Yeah, I agree with all of what Yasmin said. It's an, it's an interesting question, the way you put it, as one of purpose, because maybe me and Yasmin, if I could venture to say, you know, to some extent, both believe that the convention you know, there is a translation and that's what's published, is perhaps the least interesting aspect of translation. Whether this was written to make the point, it more or less embodies it. It's wonderful to be able to work like that. I don't think either of us were particularly concerned with the degree to which the translation cleaved to the text or didn't. It wasn't particularly generous in that sense. Yes. But, you know, I had a feeling um, while I was reading um, the, the different series, it, there, there was another parallel that I couldn't help thinking about, and that's how Ibn Arabi's own work circles around consistent themes throughout his life. You know, the yearning for union with the divine, which got him into trouble in his own lifetime, um, the centrality of love um, and so on, and, you know, the, the mystical union. And so his prolific output um, in all sorts of genres um, could also be read as repetitions in that they're an attempt to get ever closer to truths, which, as he himself said, were actually inexpressible. 
do you did you think at all about that attempt at groping ever closer towards meaning you're right you're right to say that i think we haven't really said yet that this is um the collection in arabic is very concerned with ideas of closeness and distance and how that binary might collapse in certain kinds of situations and and as you say there are basic themes in the collection that run through the poems and the poems might be thought of as variations on those themes they're like constellations of poems that seem to turn around a, a pole yeah so what we were doing in a way was mirroring some of yeah. those ideas or drawing out something that was already in the arabic poems rather than impose a kind of game from the outside i think it was also a way of responding to what the poems themselves are concerned with well yes i mean i have the reynold nicholson translation of some of them and and that comes out very clearly did you did you use any previous translations i didn't really much like the idea of reading them yeah to be perfectly honest um particularly because it is very easy to be captured by imagery mm-hmm. yeah and you know despite yourself it can come out and it's not so much the the phrasing or the words it's the approach to the poem that can confine you immediately yeah i was trying to think about what the poems meant to me how i would cast them what use i could make of them to put it more coldly mm. it's a really good question I was I was thinking about this the other day talking to someone about the difference between how Arabic envisions the poetic line right and ideas that English might have about what a poetic line is in Arabic a, a kind of classical line is usually divided in half so it has a kind of opening in the middle and someone made the point that that English tends to think of the opening being at the end whereas the Arabic line is more I think is more self enclosed so almost by definition there is no equivalence i mean these things can't be they have to be remade an arabic line has to be remade in english and it might not take the form of a line in fact it usually doesn't it kind of ties somehow there's there is a center that you're you're both sort of circling around is it yeah. was very useful having that on the page i found but you've spoken of this as such a freeing type of translation that there aren't so many constraints and you're being i think robin you said you're being fed by each other's translations to go on and go further and 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 go to different places um and it all sounds just very experimental and very free but i want to know what has that done to your translation practice now i mean you're both working as translators what have you taken forward into your into your work that's done alone it was a way of it was a way of writing it was freeing not just because it just not just because it removed some of the constraints that are usually around translation but it was also freeing because it became a way of writing about things that interested us and writing in different forms that interested us and to me at least i feel like it it allowed me to write perhaps more than it's kind of influenced the way i translate yeah that's kind of where my question was i suppose that you do have these choices um as translators you have too much choice i always felt <laughs> yeah, yeah. that that was very onerous that did those decisions felt so final and if you just did it wrong you 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 know if you chose the wrong word one time and it popped up another time and you were kind of committed to it i don't know i was kind of hampered by all of those considerations right right absolutely. and i no, exactly i wondered 
Well, I guess it is just a form of writing, isn't it? But somehow I don't have it with writing in the way I have it with translation. But I wondered if you'd, if you'd had an experience where you'd given yourselves permission, did that make it a slightly different mindset when you go back to other things? Is there this case where you can be more free? If I could say the approach to translation being that or being able to be that already existed, I think it was nice to occupy that space to sort of create a space in which I could allow myself to do things and see them to the end instead of perhaps second-guessing myself. It's, it's nice to have a space just to let yourself go all the way and see how far it can go and I think that's important that's a very freeing and liberating thing but I'm not you have to have the capacity or the sort of attitude to see translation a certain way perhaps well and as Yasmin you were saying there just isn't that setup is there always for translators to have that freedom with with a reading public and, and, and editors and publishers and all the rest of it the the constraints are imposed rather than coming from inside us aren't they oh yeah yeah. And I was, I had a sort of anxiety about this book coming out and feeling like it would, it would sort of upset everyone or not really being able to, <laughs> to envision um, who would, who would read it because I suppose I, I imagined that the people who would read it would either be Ibn Arabi people, people who yeah. know about, <laughs> people who know about Ibn Arabi and his philosophy and would just be sort of insulted by what we'd done. <laughs> with him yeah, yeah. Um, or, or just sort of curious readers of contemporary poetry in English um, and then the risk was that they would end up feeling a bit sort of stranded without <laughs> this kind of relationship to the material yeah. that yeah. you were responding to. Oh yes I can see why but I'm, I'm sure Ibn Arabi loves it. <laughs> oh yeah. I wonder if we could read another, another sequence um, to kind of maybe to illustrate that point about how translation sort of cleared a space for writing, maybe. That would be wonderful. Could you say a few words about why you chose it? Um, this is another sequence of four poems. I sometimes think of it as a kind of spell for a heat wave. We, we took the ideas that were in the poem about um, abundance and the kind of desire for endless abundance in different directions, but I don't want to, I don't want to explain it too much beforehand. Garden of the Valley. Give something back to the one with boundaries to her name, the one who has white teeth, garden of the valley. Give her something of your shade, no longer than her circle needs to settle, her tents to round their backs, and you will have your fill of spray to feed the shoots, your fill of flood, of clouds suspending all integrity to keep alive the night trees, and the morning, and you will have your fill of shelter and your fill of sweet fruit to the picker, swaying to be picked, your fill of those who seek Zarud and its sand, who move their flock by singing, who show them the way. Garden in the Wadi, if your trees will speak their shade for a while, a while only over my fever, until they are gathered there, about her and her tents are raised. Garden in the Wadi, in the heart of you. Oh, then you can have what you want of fine rain to feed your boughs. The downpours you want, and the damp from clouds constant back and forth above the trees, the shade on shade. The fruit that you want, fat in the eye and sagging the trees, and the song driving behind. 
and the line which leads in the front, which you need. All those speak nature poems, but you were busy enclosing, whiting your bones two times a day for 500 years. Just hold the line till we have built our capital on her back. Now look what you, she is responding. Not what you, but here it comes. All you can drink precipitation, instant river, just add water, clouds high on deregulation, flood the fruit market with leaky dreaming. See, you really can of constant growing, have it, but will there be singing all? Picture such liquidity. Your interest, your eye is in. What wells in quiet accumulate or ask for a draw in summon lashings. Far away, high overheads, clouds bounce about the sky. It's always cool enough. You couldn't pick enough to empty the branches. Do you have what it takes anymore? Wet heaven, safe, beyond a pail of teeth, yours. What grew while you guarded the door is singing before you and after you, is springing inside of you. Speak. Yasmin, Robin, thank you very much. You can buy Agitated Air, poems after Ibn Arabi, direct from Tenement Press's website and follow them both on Twitter at Yasmin Seal and at Robin Mosher. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.